Hello, and welcome to the Notcast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week and has a monthly Patreon episode. Not here. Oh, no, not here. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brady Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And we're here today to talk about um, this episode. An episode that has stirred passions far and wide, but in a much, much different way than last week. Yes, so we're here today to talk about Season 8, Episode 3 of Game of Thrones, The Long Night, or The the Medium Night, or The Short Night, <laughs> as, it's, as it's come to be known among those of us who are not entirely pleased with the episode. <laughs> Medium night is great. I've never even thought about that. But yeah, basically it takes place at about like two or three o'clock in the morning until about 630 or so in the morning when the sun rises. So it's a it's about a three hour long night. I mean, I guess nights are calculated a little bit differently in, in Westeros, maybe. I, I don't know. Is, is that just it's just it's that crazy fantasy world timing, Jeff. I'm sure a year went by on the span of a night, something like that. Uh, something like that. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> this episode, man. Last week, I was saying to a few friends privately that if Game of Thrones was as good on whole as A Night of the Seven Kingdoms was as an individual episode, I wouldn't be sitting around pining for the winds of winter so much. And, you know, for one week, one week, I didn't mind not having the winds of winter in my hands right now to look at it and read it and analyze it and tell everyone who has been wrong about things that they're wrong. But after this episode, Emmett, I got to say, I'm back to pining ever so strongly for the winds of winter. Yeah, me too. Last week was definitely these kind of glorious golden heights of what the show could accomplish. And I feel like I crashed back down to earth like one of the dragons in the battle this week. <laughs> Obviously, there's there's a lot to like and even love about the episode. And we will get into that. But yeah, there was there was something that, that, that felt a little hollow, a little a little off about about the writing and the ending and the way it came together. And we'll, we'll explore in bits and pieces why that may be. But that was that was just the initial kind of feeling I came out of this one. Imp- impressed, but also kind of deflated in comparison to last week. I am with you 100%. And I feel like at this point, 3,000 people have just hit the stop button on our podcast and have deleted us totally. And we're saying goodbye to you. And we don't care about you and your opinions. And that's perfectly fair. Like if, if people love it and are into it and around other people who are love it and excited and don't want to deal with criticisms of it, I think that's honestly perfectly fine. You experience and enjoy and consume your media however you want. But we wanted to establish that, yeah, we're not just, you know, people who hate Game of Thrones, right. which I think I've already been called a few times on the <laughs> internet today, as if I didn't just praise last week's episode right. to the high heavens because I loved it. Yeah. And what happened this week is that I didn't love it. And who knows what's going to happen this next week. So I think sometimes, you know, we indulge in this ourselves, sometimes... We, we treat every episode as kind of a sweeping statement on Game of Thrones as a whole. And that's not that's not really fair to how a TV show works. No, I agree with that. And I think that goes for a lot of the later seasons. I feel that individual episodes per each season are particularly strong. I mean, I think of season five's Hard Home being that one shining ember in an otherwise not so great season. And season sure. six's The Door being a really, really great episode as well as The Winds of Winter episode 10. And then season seven, The Spoils of War was just an outstanding episode. So I always feel that individual episodes and especially individual scenes in Game of Thrones later seasons are much stronger individually and in isolation from the rest of the greater whole, which I don't find as compelling as it did in earlier seasons. And of course, as compelling, especially to A Song of Ice and Fire, the five books that we have from the series from George R. R. Martin, which we are very eager to get back into. And just, well, just tomorrow as we're recording our next episode on Daenerys 7. Such different worlds. But yeah, and 
The problem is that kind of inconsistent writing style where the parts are good, but the whole is not so much makes it much easier to get away to get away with an episode like last week, right. a bottle episode that's just focused on the characters and is all about those scenes. Whereas when, when push comes to shove and the pedal's got to hit the metal and you actually have to resolve things like in this week's episode, that's where I, I think you start seeing the weaknesses of the show. Yeah. But again, we'll get into all the details of that. <laughs> we just wanted to give you our, our little, little brief overview of how, how we felt about the long night. Absolutely. So as we progress into the episode itself, our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about potentially all the published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, and especially Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So we figured we would start this episode off with our little icebreaker about an interview that Miguel Sapochnik gave, who is the director for this episode. And it was conducted at Entertainment Weekly that just came out, I think, this morning or maybe last night after the episode aired, in which he was talking about his inspiration for this episode and why he did this episode the particular way he did it. And he said, quote, For my reference point, I watched The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, because the siege is a 40-minute sequence, but it's actually three different battles in three different places intercut. That was the biggest thing I could think of that was contemporary. I was trying to get a sense of when do you tire out. I think we're going to blow past that. It feels like the only way to really approach it properly, that is the battle episode itself, is take every sequence and ask yourself, why would I care to keep watching? One thing I've found is the less action, the less fighting you can have in a sequence, the better. We can also switch genres. There's suspense and horror and action and drama, and we're not stuck in killing upon killing because then everybody gets desensitized and it doesn't mean anything. So, I mean, I figure I would ask you, regardless of our personal feelings in the episode, did it succeed on its own terms of not tiring viewers out on the battle sequences by kind of mixing in the suspense and the horror and the action and, and drama genres? I think it partially succeeded. I definitely appreciated the slower slasher-oriented bits in the library. That was a nice change of pace. That was just shot and scored very differently than everything else in the episode. And that changed it up from the large-scale action sequences. So to a certain extent. But I still did find myself getting fatigued by the action and kind of getting taken out of things by it. I mean, you got... Mm There's only so many times I can look at a blurry shot of John flying through the clouds and then it cuts away and there's someone stabbing someone, I'm guessing from the haircut that it's Jamie, (laughs) but it's pretty much all I got. Look, I I get the point. War is chaos. War is bloodshed. War does not always resolve itself into neat little squares on the risk board. And that this is the long night, so of course it's dark and chaotic and cloudy. But I understand those themes within 15 seconds. I get it. Right. I get that immediately. And so five minutes later, I need something else than those ideas to keep me in the scene and... And I found it lacking around the middle when we were just kind of hacking and slashing our way through Winterfell and I wasn't seeing much progression or, or change in strategy yeah. or really advancement in characters we're going to be talking about in a bit. And yeah, and so speaking of character, he mentioned uh, drama and of course that's a huge part of creating an effective battle scene is when you mm-hmm. pair everything down to the characters. Like in Helm's Deep when you have just the last stand and Aragorn telling Theoden, write out with me, write out for your people mm-hmm. and we're going we're to take it to him. Great dramatic moments. Or like when Theoden is reciting a poem to himself as the orcs march on his fortress you know there's strong dramatic moments and this one i I didn't really feel that i didn't really feel strong character stuff like compared to the battle at castle black and at the end of season four the watchers on the wall battle against mance raider's army which was similar to this in terms of being in the north and very kind of dark the battle taking place at night and just the the huge army attacking your kind of small pitiful defenses but yeah that that Episode had so many individual dramas, like Gren's last stand down in the tunnel. Yeah, you know, getting his his, his brothers to say the words with him one last time as, as they went down swinging, or Alistair Thorne being like a human being for the only time in right. the show or books, and actually gonna semi apologizing to John, revealing he actually does care about his brothers in the Night's Watch. 
you know, wonderful little moments like that that pull you into the action scenes and keep you hooked even as they go on and on and on. Right. As, as Spotchnik said, they tend to do. And in this episode, there were exceptions, like Theon is a major one, but for a lot of characters, I wasn't feeling that. No, I'm kind of with you on that. And that, for me, you say your reference point for Game of Thrones battles is something like the Watchers on the Wall episode, which is a fantastic, fantastic, brilliant episode. And our, our friend of the show, Adam Whitehead, a.k.a. Wordhead, said, if they could only bring Neil Marshall back for all these episodes, yep. wouldn't it be great? And I do feel like Miguel Sapochnik isn't, really good director i mean he did direct hard home which is one of the episodes that i cited earlier as being one of the ones that i really really love a lot one of the bright moments from season five but my reference point for game of thrones battles is the battle of the blackwater blackwater which is season two episode nine and i'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later on but what makes the blackwater bloody brilliant in my opinion is this yes it takes place at night it's ill lit but you understand the characters their motivations and i remember going into that episode and this was before i had read the books and in fact, Blackwater and then the succeeding episode from season two are the reasons why I started reading A Song of Ice and Fire was that I didn't know who I wanted to win on one hand, but I was also, but I also understood the stakes on each side and understood that I wanted to have a, something that I could like capture. Like the character moments really captured me. The, the scene with Tyrion and Shay in the bedroom where Tyrion's talking about how if Stannis takes the city, he'll sack it and he'll kill me and kill everyone else in the city who is aligned with the Lannisters. That impacted me as well. Davos is seen with Mathos where they're talking about, you know, what's it going to be like when they, when they take King's Landing and how the sounding of bells and, and Mathos is like, oh, this, they're sounding for the king coming to them. And Davos is like, I've never heard bells being sounded like that in King's Landing for the, the arrival of the king. And then drums, of course, which is one of my favorite lines from, from season two. Yeah, that's one of my all-time favorite moments in the show. They, they're interested in music. Well, let, let us play. Give him drums. And then his son yells, drums! And then you get the, yeah. <laughs> that's great stuff. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm talking about in terms of dramatic moments in the midst of battle scenes. And what do we have to compare that in The Long Night? It's like Tyrion and Sansa in the crypt. Give me one line of dialogue that happened there. Give me, what, what was the character dynamic that was interesting? Um, How does that compare to Sansa and Cersei, for example, during the Blackwater? Right. In the equivalent scene when they're the civilians being kept from the war. Obviously, that's a scene that draws from the books, but it has its real own powerful energy. And I, I just didn't didn't quite feel that here. I mean, what did what moments did someone like Davos or Tormund have in this battle to compare to Davos and Mathos and Blackwater? Not so much. Again, there are exceptions, and, and we'll get into those as we go, but... Yeah, I, I think I understand that. I think the Long Night did a good job, purely in terms of cutting between those those different segments, yes. the suspense, horror, action, drama segments. And I think the the suspense and horror segments worked very well for me, actually. Yeah. But a, a lot of those different segments were were present, but didn't feel quite as strong as in previous battle episodes. No, I definitely agree with that. And then, of course, like the lighting aspect too, kind of is reaching people in certain ways and i understand the counter argument which is that well it's the long night everything's supposed to be dark and everything like that but at the same time blackwater and watchers on the wall both take place at night but you can get a sense of who is fighting what is going on and this and in blackwater itself you have literal wildfire that lights up the sky that really kind of sets a contrast to that blackness and that darkness that's going on there so these are some opening thoughts. I think Em and I are coming down on this episode a little bit, and that's okay. And if you guys really, really love this episode, obviously let us know and tell us why you really, really love this episode. We are all eyes, I guess, for your wrong opinions about it. <laughs> Agreed. And, and, you know, like you say, there, there's a realism element to this, this battle, especially in terms of the long night descending. But, you know, realism isn't just 
an excuse. It has to be deployed well. Right. Like you can't justify an artistic decision by saying it's realistic. It has to be realistic for a purpose. Correct. Because obviously a lot of elements of the show are not realistic. Right. And for good reason. So it's it's still a it's still a creative choice you're making. And I think, yeah, I'm seeing some defenses of the cinematography of that battle that I don't quite agree with. But I think it, there's an important huge caveat that like compression that HBO goes through, especially to most like consumer screens, can be kind of terrible. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the experience you have watching is the experience you have watching it. But yeah, the, the complaints people are having about how this episode looked, I think, may have less to do with how it was filmed and more just to do with the technology of how it gets to your screen. Yeah. Just I'm, I'm a complete neophyte in those matters. But from what people who know what they're talking about have said, that maybe would have happened here. Yeah, that could be the case. And for those of you who are interested, our guest last week on John 8, Kim Renfro is doing an excellent series on Insider where she is lighting up individual scenes from these Game of Thrones season eight episodes itself. So if you're interested in checking that out, check out Kim on Insider and she's got a great little series going there. But with that, let us get on to the synopsis for this episode. And man, I was I was telling Emmett before we came on air that I was trying to write the synopsis and a lot of it kind of blurs together. So if things are out of sequence and don't occur exactly when they occur in the episode itself, I make no apologies. HBO should be apologizing to me, I think. So, <laughs> Jesus Christ. So many people are going to be angry. Agreed, so, agreed. so many people are going to be angry. All right. <laughs> so with that, here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 3, The Long Night. And before we start, let's pour one out for all the major characters who died. We have Grey Worm who died, so sad when he fell to the ground, whispering the name Masande one last time. John, what a death scene. Really reminded me of Ned's death scene in season one. A, a nice callback from the episode director there. Oh, man. And then Daenerys, when she died, sacrificing herself to save the world from the Night King. Incredible. Finally, the deaths that hit me the most, Jamie and Brienne, dying in each other's arms. I wept. I cried. I, I fe- Why are you looking at me like that, Evan? Jeff, you're lucky you're handsome to, be, <laughs> to get away with such nonsense. I, I do declare. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you're not having my bullshit today. That's fine. So <laughs> let's talk about the major deaths first. The, ma- the first, the major death, the most important death, I would say, was Theon Greyjoy, which was mm-hmm. genuine and real. I felt genuine, real things when he died. Agreed. That was the emotional peak of the episode, for sure. Yep. And then I guess those bastards got Jorah Mormont. I'm so sad. I'm not. Whatever. And Beric and uh, Duller's Ed and that one Dothraki call whose name no one can ever remember. M- Melisandre died, too. Man, the death count for name characters was so huge. So, so very huge. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Anyhow, we should start back. It's the hours before dawn and everyone is silent. We start from the point of view of Samuel Tarly bumping through the Winterfell courtyard where he sees Lyanna Mormont yelling commands, Brandon Theon heading towards the Godswood, Davos bringing arrows up the castle wall. He ends up at the front lines with Dullers Ed. The army is lined up with Dothraki in the front, catapults behind, and unsullied infantry behind the catapults with Northmen and Vale soldiers on the flanks. And then a rider approaches. An emissary from the White Walkers? The mouth of Sauron? No. It's Melisandre of Ashai. She comes at the dawn of time anyways, though. She orders the Dothraki to raise their Arax, and then she uses some sort of magic to light the Arax on fire. They turn to flame, and I think we can now safely conclude that it's not Jon, Danny, Stannis, Davos, or even that motherfucker Victarion who are Azora High Reborn. It's the Dothraki nation. So there we have. There we have something resolved from the books. From a nearby hilltop, John and Daenerys look over their army with some fear and trepidation, and then the Dothraki charge. Was it part of the plan? Instinctive? A mistake? It fucking beats me. They ride, flaming arrows in hands. The catapults throw flaming rocks in the general direction of the unseen enemy. The Dothraki charge and charge and charge. And then they run to a jump scare. Wow. That that sucks. Brienne, Jamie, Grey Worm, and the others watch as the flaming arrows go out one by one. It's an eerie effect. I'll give them that. 
<sighs> then in the darkness, the army waits and waits, and then a tsunami wave of whites crash into the unsullied, riding over the front lines. The army staggers back, attempting to fight the whites off. Swords are swung, spears are thrust forward. Lots and lots of men and women die, though not named characters. Dollars Ed dies, though, saving Sam, but it's really too much for our army. Daenerys jumps aboard Drogon and begins burning the shit out of the white lines. Jon joins her. They rise high into the sky in search of the Night King and come upon the line of white walkers aboard their dead horses behind the army of whites. Jon makes for them, but then the winter storm hits. Obviously magical, it throws everything into confusing into confusion and blows Jon and Danny off course. They bounce around the clouds of snow and wind, utterly disoriented. Meanwhile, down below, the wings of the army begin to break. The Northmen and the Veilmen begin fleeing backwards towards Winterfell. Davos orders the gates open and the survivors begin pouring through the gates. Now with the unselling being pressed in from three sides, they try to hold steady with Grey Worm shouting his men to safeguard the retreat. But they get pushed back and back and back, all the way to the trench and the line of obstacles behind them. Then Melisandre walks out in literal slow motion. Grey Worm and a few unsullied form a perimeter around her. She arrives at the trench and begins encanting against the ditch as the army of the dead pushes closer and closer to her. After about the 15th stanza of her one verse song, the trench finally, finally ignites. This allows Danny and John to reorient themselves and they burn more whites. Meanwhile, in the godswood, Bran goes white eyes and skin chases a flock of ravens. They take you to the air in search of the Night King, and they're just about to find and they're just about to engage in some sort of astral plane battle above above Winterfell, right? Right? No, he just finds the Night King high above the clouds aboard a white walker Viserion. But even as that happens, the whites begin falling into the fire, creating holes in it. The army of the dead rushes forward. Davos orders everyone to the walls to hold the army off, to hold the army of the dead back. And why weren't they on the walls to begin with? We'll talk about that. But there are too many whites. They breach the walls and push everyone back. Arya fights, swirls, fights. Sandra Clegane has a PTSD flare-up with all the fire everywhere. But Beric shakes him out of it by pointing out all of Arya's heroics. Daenerys and Jon go for the Night King, but it goes badly immediately with Jon being thrown from Rhaegal and Daenerys forced to mano mano with the Night King. They duel in the skies above the, above the storm without resolution until the Night King is knocked off White Walker Viserion. He falls, but not to his death. In the Winterfell Library, though, Arya is stalked by whites and manages to evade them for a time until a wave of them crash into the room. She runs from them and encounters Sandra and Beric, who proceed to fight the army of the whites and run with Arya. Beric is badly wounded in the fight. Beric ends up dying. Rip. Melisandre is the room that Sandra and Arya run to, and she asks Arya what they say to the god of death. Not today. Arya scurries off to parts unknown. Shit's going real bad outside, though. A giant breaks through the gates. Lyanna Mormont is crushed by the white giant, but she is able to stab the giant through the eye and kill him. She dies. Rip. Daenerys and Drogon get towards the land and find the Night King while Jon is on the ground. She decries the Night's King, but the fire doesn't kill him. Kind of a major reveal. John draws long call and rushes towards the Night King, but then the Night King praises Jesus with his arms and raises the dead. They swarm around John before he can get to the Night King. John begins fighting the undead and tries pursuing the Night King to the godswood. He's quickly cornered by White Walker Viserion in the Winterfell Courtyard and ends up trying to fight him and is being chased all over the Winterfell Courtyard by him and his blue fire and somehow is never burned despite the fire being inches away from him. Whatever. And in the most outrageously unforeseen plot twist ever, the dead in Winterfell's crypts come to life, oh no, and start killing the civilians of the crypts itself. Tyrion and Sansa survive, though, and Chloe of the Girls Gone Canon fame sent me a link of Tyrion and Sansa fighting the Whites that was apparently cut from the episode. And why the fuck didn't you include it, you fucking monsters at HBO? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, that would have been awesome. Meanwhile, Daenerys is on the ground now fighting as Drogon gets jumped by a couple hundred Whites. Jorah Mamont shows up. Where the fuck did he come from? No idea. Jorah takes multiple wounds with Danny, But now the Night King and his entourage come striding into the godswood with one White Walker holding a boombox with the White Stripes Seven Nation army playing. Theon, who, by the way, has been fighting like a goddamn hero in the godswood, knows it's the end for him. Bran returns from white eyeing, tells Theon that he's a good man and thanks him. Theon charges the Night King with a spear and is killed by the Night King. Rip. 
The Night King slow walks to Bren under the heart tree, reaches for his sword, and then who appears but Stannis? No, it's actually Arya. Leaping straight from the screenwriter's pen to the Night King's back, Littlefinger's dagger at hand, and she almost, almost stabs him, but the Night King catches her by the throat with one hand and then her wrist with the other. A second later, Arya drops the dagger, catches it with the other hand, and stabs the Night King. He dies. Rip, I, I guess. The White Walkers are all destroyed. The Whites all die in mass. Melisandre walks out as dawn rises on the horizon. She takes her ruby necklace off, transforms into an old woman and dies. Rip. And thus ends Game of Thrones, the TV series. What an ending. Wait, there's three episodes left? So, so, so wait, the final boss in all of this is motherfucking Cersei? Uh, okay. Exactly. Beautifully done, sir, in the synopsis as always. And yeah, that last mention of Cersei gets at one of the problems with this episode that I think I've seen even a lot of people who enjoyed it more than we did have been pointing this out. Is It's a real head scratcher what the show is even about now. And there's a lot of directions they can take this in. A darker version of Daenerys, a darker version of Tyrion, some big John Danny duel in the skies with their dragons. I don't know. But as, as it's set up right now, we're, we're going to just uh, turn our heads to, to Cersei and King's Landing. And that, that does just feel kind of hollow in terms of scale and importance yeah. that we just come together to defend humanity from this overwhelming wave of ice demons. But now we got to wonder what shenanigans Kyburn and Euron and the Golden Company are going to get up to, <laughs> those, those utter mooks. And, and I've heard people compare it to, like, the scouring of the Shire in The Lord of the yeah. Rings, where Sauron is defeated, but the series isn't over. They go on to the Shire and found it's been taken over by Saruman, the secondary villain, in this just breathtakingly petty act of destruction before he himself goes out. And, that yeah, you know, that gets at the idea that you, you can't always go home to your perfect happy ending and the wounds you took are going to stay, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, you know, it's important. It's my favorite part of The Lord of the Rings, the book series. It's, it's, it's really strong stuff. The problem with that comparison is... We just had a battle at the Shire. Right. Winterfell is the closest thing to the Shire in A Song of Ice and Fire, in Westeros and Game of Thrones, and it just got mighty fucking scoured already. Right. That's you know that's why the scouring of the Shire works, because the battle doesn't take place there, and then they go home to find in horror that the war has touched it, as, as they never expected it to. But King's Landing is, isn't an area we've been conditioned to want to fight over and rescue. Like, King's Landing is the opposite of Winterfell, the, you know, the Red Keep versus Winterfell. And, and House Stark and all its uh, glorious black and gray colors. So there's not that same kind of uh, emotional connection that you see with something like, oh, we got to go home and save the Shire now. Like, the only way I can see that really working is if they come up with, with an interesting conflict among John and Danny, which I hope they do. Because otherwise, if it really is just about taking down Cersei, that is going to be a joke. Yeah, uh, my fear is that it's mostly going to be about taking down Cersei. I and and the reason why I say that is that we know that Miguel Sapochnik is coming back for episode five. Yep. And why did they bring Miguel Sapochnik back for any episode of Game of Thrones? Well, it's either to do a major battle scene or the wins of winner from season six. I mean, that's really the only times that he is at episode directors when we have battle scenes coming into the series. So my feeling is that episode four is going to be the build up to the battle between Cersei, Euron and the Golden Company versus our heroes at Winterfell and the surviving remnants of the army. You know who would be really useful in this situation is actual Euron from the books <laughs> who's legitimately a threat and is like a, like a walking magical threat in and of himself he would be really handy right now yeah too bad he too bad he doesn't exist okay so we've we've you know dwelt on the things we didn't like about the episode plenty and we will do more of that in a bit but you know let's let's get into the positives we sure. can say nice things yes, of course let's let's prove that we can do that i think the obvious big highlight was was theon's death yes and this i think was was really beautifully done on everyone's part alfie allen uh, Isaac Hampstead right as Bram, the writing, the, the the framing of it, even like 
the Night King seeming to grant this vague respect to Theon. Like, you kind of got that sense. He was like, I'm going to give you this, like, you know, this, this low and heroic death. I see what you're doing here. I'm going to give this to you. And it was just such a beautiful culmination for a character who had felt these divided loyalties and turned on Winterfell specifically when Bran was prince. Yeah. And betrayed him and made him a captive and all the horror that led to for both himself and others. And now he's coming back to try to close the loop. And when, when Bran said, Theon, you're, you're a good man, that, that made me well up. Yeah. Cause that's what he's wanted to hear for so long. And right. this is a, a perfect person for him to hear it from. So that, that again, in isolation, uh, I, I thought that worked really well. And, Raise a glass for Alfie Allen because yeah, he's, he's given one of the best performances on the show and he should be given all credit where credit is due to him. 100%. And, you know, I actually felt really strong book vibes as well when they had Alfie Allen as Theon walking Bran to the, the Godswood with his bow strung across his back. And I'm like, yeah, that is Theon right there. I'm finally seeing Theon again and it made me like made my skin kind of crawl. It's still making me crawl right now. My hair kind of stand up on my arms. Me too. Just had the same reaction because it feels like the book. It makes me think now maybe Theon isn't going to go back to the Iron Islands as I kind of assumed he he would uh, in the books and in the Winds of Winter. Maybe just Asha goes back. Yeah. Like like we see uh, at this point in the show and then Theon sticks around in the Winterfell for something like this because yeah that, that presence with the bow at the gods would raise that great scene in Dance with Dragons this did feel like extremely canonical Theon yeah it really really did so what what else did you like about this episode any particular character that you saw some fiery character potentially well okay so Melisandre <laughs> uh, her presence doesn't make much actual sense as we'll get into in a bit but <laughs> I, I don't really care because she she was such a one-note presence in the show up to now. And I'm so disappointed by that because I think her character is actually much more interesting in the books yes. than she's given credit for. So watching her not only come back but dominate in this way that made me feel like this is the character from the books was, was just very powerful. And I, I love that the episode ended with her and with this callback to how season six, episode one, The Red Woman ended with the reveal of Melisandre's glamour and her older self. And this this episode ended with her kind of accepting that and embracing death and feeling she'd done the right thing. And Davos just let her go. And Davos just let her have that death yeah. instead of the violent death he promised he would give her. And I thought that that's just... That's just very generous to a character the show has not usually been very generous to yeah. and, and very, very humane. And it makes me feel, again, I, I do think Melisandre is going to have a death like that in the books where she has a big fight against the White Walkers after Stannis' downfall or death and then kind of gives herself up. So that was, it was, it was resonant. I liked it. I, it was resonant for me too. I mean, George has talked about Melisandre being the most misunderstood character in Song of Ice and Fire. And it was good to see the complexity bear itself out in her character this episode. I really enjoyed every single scene she was in, whether it was talking with Davos or her slow walk. I mean, I made fun of it in the synopsis, but her kind of slow walk out to the pit there to light the fire. Like that was really cool. And of course, when she lit the Arax up, that was like, I was like, hell yeah, here we go. Now we're going to get some really awesome tech. Never mind. Well, I'll get to that in a little bit here. But visually though, yeah, yeah. that was incredible. And I was watching it at Ice and Fire Con with a bunch of people and everyone just was, was cheering and then just, you know, hooping, hooting and hollering. And it was, it was a powerful moment again, especially since she had been, we hadn't seen her in so long. And since she is, wasn't usually allowed to be badass in this way or on the side of a positive moment in this way, yeah. given this kind of catharsis. So, yeah, that was great. It was really good. What about you, sir? What did, what did you like about this episode? I mean, so I, I, I try to highlight things that maybe are a little bit overlooked in some places. And I kind of base this off of some of the social media interactions I have, especially on Twitter, what people are like really into and what people have not really mentioned a lot of. And I do think that Jamie and Brienne fighting back to back in Winterfell Courtyard was mm. a really stellar scene. I mean, it's sometimes really hard to tell if it's actually them there, but I assume it's them if I'm like, 
seeing a particular part of the wall and I've seen them there before, I'm like, okay, that's probably Jamie and Brienne fighting back to back. Again, it's the haircuts. You can yes. the little the outlines of their heads give it away. But yeah, that was great. The two halves of Ned Stark's sword back to back at Winterfell. That's brilliant. I didn't even thought about that, but that is really, really cool. Defending Winterfell itself too. Amazing. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more about the Dothraki and the battle itself, but the fire arrows going out in the distance and then watching that was a really cool effect. Like the spectacle was really spooky and you're like what the fuck is coming at them and i did like i did like actually i usually don't like jump scares but i did like the jump scare of the dothraki colliding with the white army yeah it was terrifying you just got a glimpse of it and then gone like that's that was so effective and then yeah like you see there's little lights going out one by one just like when corin halfhand says in, in book two if the wall ever falls those fires will go out one by one yeah like that was such a perfect way of getting across the, the idea of the long night all the fires going out Agreed. And on that same sort of vein, I also really liked when Sandor has this outbreak of PTSD with all the fires all around him. It was really nice. and It was a nice callback to A Clash of Kings in season two when Sandor was on the Blackwater and he just freaked out at all the wildfire going on. And you really understand why he freaks out. I mean, the show didn't exactly emphasize like why Sandor is freaking out in this moment here. And I understand why they don't. And I guess it's more of like a nod to book readers, maybe like, hey, this is the guy who got his face burned to a crisp by his brother in the in the, in the backstory. But it was a really, really good touch, I thought, of, of Sandra Clegane just being unable to fight anymore for a brief moment until he sees Arya like doing amazing things out on the battlefield. And that's what brings him back, trying to save Ned's girl. And I thought that was really, really cool. For sure. Again, I said that you know, this episode didn't quite match earlier battle episodes for me in terms of little character moments and little dramas. But there were exceptions to that. And that moment was one of them because that had felt like a character having to deal with a flaw and then overcome it, which is not something I think happened enough in this episode and in terms of, you know, concrete obstacles to overcome. And I think, I think Sandra did a really good job of that. And, yeah, it was, it was just made sense for all three characters, for Sandor, for Beric, and Arya. Like, it yeah. made sense that Sandor would have this fear. It made sense that Beric, of all people, would be the one to help him get over it. Right. And it makes sense that he would do that by pointing to Arya as a positive example. Like, that's that's a case of using all your characters effectively. Yeah, that was really good. And my final one is that I really, really liked when Arya was creeping around the Winterfell library, avoiding the whites that were kind of creeping after her. And I, as I was watching this episode, I legit whispered at the TV screen, quiet as still water which is you know we we did the aria four <laughs> episodes somewhat recently for the for the mm-hmm. main cast and i was like man that's a that's a nice little callback of aria being totally silent and being able to kind of dodge all these folks until of course that wave of whites comes bursting into the winterfell library and kind of ruins the moment but it doesn't ruin the moment it just amp- amplifies attention quite 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 significantly for sure and then I, I did say finally once before but i do have a final final one and that is the theon dying scene i know I know that there was a lot of people being like, oh, what? Theon's Theon's last charge was suicidal. He didn't have to do that because Arya was going to jump out and kill the Night King. And they're fucking wrong, man. They're so fucking, fucking wrong. In fact, Theon brushing the Night King when he did is what gave Arya the time to jump the Night King as uh, towards the end of it. If it had not happened, if he hadn't bought Bran those 10 to 15 seconds of time, then Arya wouldn't have been able to save her brother from the Night King itself. That was really, really good. And it was really, really nice to have Theon die as Theon. And he chose, and him choosing not to go out as Reek, he dies as Theon's spear in hand. That's just, it's, it still touches me now. I feel like that scene is so reminiscent of episode two's like moments there, those emotional moments. Yes, that's character a great moments. point. It really brings Theon's arc full circle. I thought that was a brilliant way to end Theon's great joy as a character in Game of Thrones. For sure. You make a great point, of course. It gave Arya the time she needed. It also, 
I get the sense it convinced the Night King that there was no more danger. Right. Like he'd gotten rid of Bran's defender so he could just move smoothly into the kill stroke and didn't have to look for anyone else. So yeah, Theon directly contributed and it was, it was a beautiful moment for his character. And as I said, I really, I actually do like Bran's little goodbye to him and, and confirmation yeah. that you're a good person. I think that was a good use of your Bran. But to shift into our, <laughs> our lowlights for the episode, Bran himself in general, I, I, you know, we've, we've talked before about not particularly liking his, his flat, effectless personality at this point in the show, but far more pressing problem is that he needs to do something. Yes. Anything. Why send his crows into the clouds just to confirm that, yes, Night King is up there and then cut away and then he's doing nothing for the rest of the episode? Right. What is the use of the three-eyed raven in the first place? What, what is he contributing? What it really reminded me of in this episode is BBC Sherlock, that show, <laughs> yeah. with Benedict Cumberpatch and Martin Freeman, which, you know, is a lot like Game of Thrones, has a great cast and a lot of money and energy put into the direction. But I got sick of it quickly because there are, mm-hmm. there are no concrete puzzles he solves on that show. It's not actually a mystery show. He's just smarter than you. Right. And he has all the answers because he's basically a wizard. <laughs> and he'll tell you what he did afterward when he's already solved it with the information you didn't have. And you just have to accept it. And I don't. I mean, this is why people are wary of magic powers as a storytelling device in the first place. Because it encourages shoddy storytelling. Yeah. Because it's kind of a weak hinge and you get to forget character because he just knows things. Why Why did Bran have this whole plan set up? Did he have this whole plan set up? He, he just did. You just have to accept it. Right. And, what, and, and the, the part of it, too, that kind of bothered me a little bit was that... What was he doing? Because he, he only was skin changing the ravens for a hot second. But he was in that kind of the white eyes, three-eyed raven mode for 95% of this episode until the very end. What was he doing the entire time there? Is that something that's going to be explained next episode? Is he going to be like, well, I was looking into the future and seeing this or something like that? I mean, maybe that would give some sustenance and sustainment to him. I, I think our, our friend, friend of the show, uh, Lord Travis, who is our master of ships in Warm of the Waves on our small council, had talked to me on, on Twitter a little bit about how he thought when Bran went to White Eyes and did, went to Three-Eyed Raven mode, he was about to engage in some sort of astral plane confrontation with the Night King, which would have been legitimately amazing. And could Game of Thrones have pulled it off? Maybe, maybe not. Hard to say. It's a kind of what if, maybe coulda, shoulda done sort of thing. And I know the counter argument might be that it's, oh, that would be too much magic there. But at the same time, it's the magic. Well, he's still doing the magic, but now we just don't see it. Now we just don't know what it is. We just have to assume he's doing it. And yeah, maybe it would be cheesy or corny or a failure, but I would definitely enjoy a cheesy, corny failure attempt at showing magic to not showing it. Interesting failures are better than non-interesting storytelling, at like 10 times out of 10, you know? I, I mean, com- completely agree. I-, I think like we just get so wrapped up in this, well, we can't go that far. I mean, that's a little too experimental for our taste, but you kind of, you do kind of want that experimental storytelling at some point because it might be influential to things down the road. You never know what could happen from, from that. So, ah, Bran, 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 his brand story <laughs> over. Oh my, I don't know. We'll get there soon. But what about you, sir? What are some specific lowlights for you? Oh, boy. So I'm desperately trying to avoid talking about the battle itself because (laughs) I promise I will. I will. I will. I promise. So like you, I really enjoyed all of Melisandre's scenes in this episode. It was a real treat to see Carice Van Houten again. She's great. She's fantastic. I love her. I would like to see more stuff with her in it, but I have not yet. But why was she back at Winterfell? What has she been doing since season seven? What made her turn back? I mean, she was allegedly going to Volantis. Did she get tossed out of the Red Temple there? Did she get a vision of the Red Temple that led her back to Winterfell? Why was she coming from the north back to Winterfell? What was she doing this entire lead up to here? I mean, so one of one of the major criticisms I've seen from a lot of book fans of the Two Towers is the scene where the Wood Elves show up at Helm's Deep just before 
the just before Saruman's army shows up. But at least in the movie version of the Two Towers, Haldir showing up at Helm's Deep with an army of wood elf archers occurs because of the astral communication between Galadriel and Elrond about whether the elves will stand aside while the fate of the world is being decided. What brought Melisandre back? I, I need answers, man. I, and I... And I feel like it's not nitpicking to ask those types of questions because I want to know why a major character is was at point A the last time we heard and now she's at point B. Like there has to be some sort of journey for her to get to Winterfell. And what was that journey? I want to know more about I want to know more about what she was doing in the lead up to this episode. Agreed, because if not, then she's not a character anymore. She's just a piece you're moving on a board. And yes, of course, objectively, that's what characters are. Right. But, you know, the art and craft of storytelling is making it not seem like that. Making it seem like it's it's much more elegant and agency-driven than just characters being moved on the board. Whereas with Melisandre, as much as, like you, I enjoyed all her scenes in isolation, her just coming out of the darkness in, in the no- of the North at the beginning of the episode is just, you could see D&D's just fingers right. on the Melisandre chess piece, just pushing it along the board. It's time for her to be here. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's just not super organic and... Yeah, of course, you know, there's constraints of time and you have to get all these characters together. But as you say, in, in Two Towers, it, there's not much set up. It's one or two scenes with Galadriel and Elrond to explain where this army is coming from and right. why they're there. And then Halder has that line he says when they show up, we are proud to fight alongside men once more. Okay, yeah. there's the theme. There you go. We're done. We explained it. Now we can just watch the battle unfold. That didn't take that much time. Right. And and to be honest, I actually really like that scene from the two towers. I mean, you, you can yeah, I like it too. I'm not a huge uh, book snob in that regard because again, there's a clear theme. The elves are these kind of detached, ethereal race, and now they're grounded. They're back in the fight. Right. You make it works. It works really, really well for the movie portion of it because I mean, it, well, we could talk about the two towers. We'll have a, maybe we'll have a Patreon episode about the two towers one day down the road. Someday, someday down the road. But all of this is kind of leading us to our two major points of this episode. And what were they? Well, you have the Battle of Winterfell on one hand, and we have the death of the Night King at the hands of Arya on the other hand. So we figured you guys would enjoy having kind of me talking about a little bit about the Battle of Winterfell, and then I'll throw, toss it on over to Emmett to talk about Arya and the Night King. And um, yeah, because, wow, the Battle of Winterfell. What what to say about this? What to say about this? Oh, yeah. What a clusterfuck. What a oh, clusterfuck. Oh, shit. But wait, I hear you slobbering morons yelling at me from the other side of this podcast. Before you begin, do you need to know that this is just a spectacle? They're not going to do real world, real world tactics. That would be uncinematic. And we should be grateful that we got something as spectacular as this. And this is a show about zombies and dragons and resurrection and magic. And you know what? You bad, ugly wrongs. If you want to watch spectacle, pop Armageddon into your VHS player and play it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying asteroids destroying Earth or watching John McClane telling Arwen how much he loves her. That's all fine and good. And it tugs at my heartstrings. And Armageddon's a great movie and you can't convince me otherwise michael bay's masterpiece truly it truly truly is but that's kind of the thing about game of thrones as a tv show you know it was marketed to hbo as the sopranos meets middle earth so it's kind of that magical element with grounded realism that's kind of interspersed throughout and something that's kept me going with game of thrones and got me interested in a song of ice and fire and that really pulled me into both of those mediums in a way that i've never experienced with any other medium save for the new testament of course is that it's maintained its sense of realism characters doing things in line with their developed characterization schemers and conspirators winning out initially but not ultimately and of course battles making some semblance of success does anyone remember the blackwater anyone anyone what makes the blackwater a million times superior to this episode it was 
that you understood the actions of the characters. Stannis sails into the Blackwater to bypass King's Landing's defenses. Tyrion keeps his smaller force behind the walls. There's a battle under the walls. Stannis rams the gates. Tyrion counterattacks Stannis' army at the gates. Stannis and the small contingent scale the walls of King's Landing and engage the Lannister and gold cloaks upon the walls. Stannis' army counterattacks Tyrion's army that just cleared the Baratheon soldiers ramming the gate. Tywin and the Tyrell show up and defeat Stannis at the last minute. And yes, there really is spectacle at the Blackwater episode. That wildfire explosion, I mean, wow. That was one of those moments that just kind of blew my fucking mind back in 2012. And it's still impressive CGI that holds up in 2019, in my opinion, seven years after it aired on Game of Thrones. But in my opinion, that spectacle was really well earned. You had all of the setup from season two with Tyrion engaging with the pyromancers. You have how dangerous wildfire is and then you don't see it for a little while but that setup is still there and sort of the same way that the setup of the wood elf showing up was made with one scene right sort of the same thing sort of the same thing happened at the blackwater where you had one scene with Tyrion and the pyromancers down in king's landing and it was a smart play on Tyrion's part to, to use wildfire and the tactics and holding off stance's larger army and it was earned man it was so fucking yep. earned so those are my opening thoughts about the just enjoy the spectacle bro line that's coming into vogue again. A line I remember, God, I remember hearing so goddamn much after the Battle of the Bastards episode aired in 2016 when people made entirely reasonable critiques of the episode and the battle and it's being used yet again to stifle legitimate criticism of the episode itself. So <sighs> agreed. Sir. I mean, it's there's nothing wrong with like, turning off your brain and enjoying the spectacle, but I do that with plenty of things that I, I just enjoy on a purely visceral level and, and don't engage with at a, at a deeper level. But you got to be honest that that's what you're doing and not have a problem with people wanting to engage with it a different way. And it's, you know, it's it's visual storytelling. It's it's the visuals, yes, but we're not just, you know, looking to harvest desktop photos. Right. Or, or it, you know, to give it more credit than that, we're not going to an art museum right. to look at individual images. We, we want some momentum and storytelling here. So just pointing to the spectacle, I don't think necessarily gets at some of the critiques people have had of the writing. One commonplace idea in writing is that you don't want to have storytelling that's just, and then this happened. Right. And then this happened. And then this happened. You want to have, but then this happened. So therefore this happened. Right. And the sense of give and take and cause and effect. And that's really strong with the Blackwater, where you not only see characters doing things, you see the other side reacting to those things. You see Tyrion launches wildfire, so Stannis says, screw it, help me come take this city, we're going to cross the river anyway. So Tyrion says, we're going to go out with the sortie, and then he runs into the Tywin and the Tyrells, and you see how that impacts right. Stannis' group. This constant build and, and, and rise and fall, and the Long Night feels felt very, and then this happened, right. and then this happened to me, in terms of its structure. It really, really did feel like that, and I mean... <sighs> Basically, all we need to really going forward, which, of course, we have three episodes left. It's not going to happen. We just need George R. R. Martin to write the episode. <laughs> As he did Blackwater. Right. And we need uh, Neil Marshall to direct the episode. There is going forward. So that's what we'll you heard do. us, HBO. Right. Make, Our demands must be met. Make this happen in six days from now. <laughs> six days henceforward. But... Yes. Okay. So the tactics. So let's start with a question we got from one of our poor fellow patrons, Sir Kyle B, who asks, I've noted many people criticizing Winterfell's tactics and agree that they would not be suited to a conventional army. However, due to their strategy, lure the Night King towards Bran and strike when he's vulnerable, and the nature of the undead army, a conventional siege defense may not be effective either. In particular, the Night King had to be convinced the others secured a complete victory to expose himself like that. Do you have any insight on a strategy for Winterfell that allows that to happen without completely exposing their army outside of Winterfell? Well, Sir Kyle B., thank you so much for asking because I do have 
something of a strategy, so to speak. And I'm going to kind of do this in um, a, a few questions that I came up with for the episode because I've got so many freaking questions about the battle <laughs> and the tactics and what was going I know on. you do. But I've, I've narrowed my like 400 questions down to just 10, the top 10. So question one, why did the Dothraki charge against the White Army? Was that planned? Sort of seems like it as the catapults started engaging as they approached the White Army, that is the Dothraki approached the White Army. Uh, Lord Patrick Spinagle, the nicest motherfucker you're ever going to beat in the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom, asks, were the Dothraki too polite to tell Melisandre, thank you for the fiery Arax, but we were not planning on getting all that close, unless the Whites rout and run away, in which case we'll pursue and cut them down. But they won't do that, so we would rather stay at range from them. Yeah, so what, what was the point of the Dothraki? What were they doing out rushing at the white army the point was a cool visual and to get them out of the way so they can't fight the golden company oh right yeah i mean that's basically it. i mean so em and i are about to record our episode uh, tomorrow night about game of uh, game of thrones dinner seven in which the dothraki destroy a lazarine town sack it and one of the things very telling about that chapter is that daenerys notes all of the arrows that are scattered all over the place from the battle itself well, the Dothraki are renowned horse archers. They are based in part, not in total, but in part on the Mongol steppe riders and other steppe rider peoples that utilized horse archer tactics in late antiquity all the way through the Middle Ages and on into the early Renaissance period in our actual real world history. So why not maybe use the Dothraki to kind of use ranged weapons? And hey, you could still get that spectacle too, where the Dothraki are firing their arrows and you have all the arrows raining down. You don't see anything that's coming on. And all of a sudden, boom, that tsunami of whites hits them at the same time. And you have all the lights going out. You still achieve the same visual effect without looking, without it being totally fucking stupid. You know? <laughs> exactly. <Why> is- <laughs> We're not saying we hate spectacle or make everything look drab and boring. We don't like your fiery trebuchets with lights going out. We're saying you don't, you can incorporate real strategy into that visual framework. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of our poor, another of our poor fellow patrons, Lady Jennifer M., makes this point in her Patreon comment. When Melisandre lit the Dothraki swords alight, she basically forced them into not using their skills as mounted bowmen. I mean, these guys can stand on horseback and shoot arrows. <laughs> and she threw an exclamation point, which is great. Seems a waste, but the visual was pretty awesome. Well, yeah. Essentially, the visual was pretty awesome, but you could use the visual in such a way and still have them fighting smartly on the battlefield itself. Okay, so that was basically questions one and two. I kind of combined the first two. Question three, why were the catapults placed in front of the infantry? For that matter, why did the army line up in front of their ditch and fucking obstacles? And I feel like my hair is on fire. Is my hair on fire? Can you see in the Skype video? Only metaphorically, sir. metaphorically. Okay, so there was a great article that came out Wired today by a, a, guy I follow on, a guy I follow on Twitter by the name of Angry Staff Officer, who's an actual real-world U.S. Army officer uh, who is wrote about, like, yeah, you in an actual battlefield scenario, you want to have your artillery behind your main line so you can keep engaging them from a distance. And you want to also have your infantry behind obstacles and barriers so they're not standing out when a fucking tsunami of whites comes charging over the horizon at you. Just saying, just, just saying. <clears throat> All right. And then that takes us to a really interesting question. Why was the army outside of Winterfell at all? I mean, when we had talked last week, I mean, I, I remember saying something like, well, they're outside because they're trying to draw the the army of the whites into there and fight them in mass and trying to canalize them and then kill them incrementally. But no, that, that that's not what happened. That That's not what happened at all. I mean, what was the point of the Unsullied in the middle with the two wings on either side of the battle? I mean, I thought that the wings were going to kind of envelop the White Army and force them and constrain them into the, the terrain itself and force them into the... 
I might just keep Even I know that's what you do. Even I would know enough to give that order. Right. And I mean, I thought it was really cool. Like that that visual of Daenerys and Jon looking at their at their army before the battle actually starts. And you see like the two wings of the army and the center mass of the Unsullied and the Dothraki out there. Oh, man. Okay. And what were John, and speaking of that, what were, John, what were John and Daenerys doing on the hilltop while the battle started besides, you know, allowing the cameraman to do CGI establishment shots? <laughs> right. I, I I don't know. It's it seems it's unclear to me, and and I and I know I've seen some people like say that well they were there because that was part of the plan to lure the Night King into the Winterfell, but that's not wasn't explicitly stated. So you're based it's it's headcanon until it's actually established in the show itself. Question seven: Why were there so few archers on Winterfell's walls? There is about forty of them, and Davos was leading them as he's apparently the the archer guy. But okay, I mean he's he's a sailor. I guess you use bows on 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 ships. What and, and for that matter, when everyone started retreating back into Winterfell, why did they all stand around like mashed up assholes in the Winterfell courtyard until someone told them to get up on the walls and repel the whites who were marching, who were basically about to rip into Winterfell itself? It seems like it would be kind of something you would practice, right? So we're retreating back to Winterfell. Then we need to immediately start mounting the wall itself and defend the wall from the oncoming whites. Makes sense. Am I, am I speaking like gibberish or nonsense here at this point? I'm picking up on it, buddy, and I don't talk military. <sighs> okay. I appreciate that. What was the point of the trench besides to delay the army of the dead for about 30 seconds? Why was it not dug more than three feet deep? What what, what was the point of that? What? Okay, final question. Why did John assume the crypts to be the safest place to place the non-combatants? He literally saw the Night King raise all the dead at heart home. You think that might have an impact when the Night King might do the same thing and make his raise his arms to Jesus moment in the show, like he did in this episode and did back at heart home? <sighs> So, I mean, I don't know. I feel like a lot of these questions might be nits to some people, but at the very least, I'm not intending it to be that way. I'm not intending to be like, oh, this show sucks because they didn't use real world tactics. It's just I want and desire the characters on the throne show to act smart. And if something doesn't go to plan, I want I want it to be a plan gone awry or something like the, the theme of no plan survives first contact with the enemy. But what I saw last night was John, Danny, and the rest of the non-red shirts lucking the fuck out of piss poor planning or no planning at all. But ultimately, it's not John, Danny, or Tyrion's fault for there being no plan. Ultimately, I think the fault rests with the writers of the show. It rests with David Benioff and Dan Weiss. And I feel like the defining feature of their writing for this episode was, wouldn't it be cool to show dot dot dot. And, you know, as much as we should praise the technical aspect of directing this episode, because, you know, there's a lot of great technical feats that are done in this episode. Miguel Sapochnik stated, as we said before, that he wanted this episode to resemble the Battle of Helm's Deep from the Two Towers. But in my opinion, this battle didn't resemble Helm's Deep so much as it resembles the Battle of the Five Armies from the third Hobbit movie. Amen to that. Now, I agree with everything you said there in terms of the, the wouldn't it be cool to show X, wouldn't it be cool to show Y being like the structure of the episode, like these these cool events weren't strung together with connective tissue and a rise and fall structure. They were just kind of presented. Right. So you didn't you didn't you, you didn't get the sense of a sense of a plan going right or a plan going wrong. Yeah. Both of which could be dramatic and interesting. Yeah. But it's just kind of neither, and you're just left with the the idea vaguely that maybe Bran always knew what was happening. Right. I guess. I guess. And that's and that's just that's just not a structure. But no, that comparison you made there to the Battle of Five Armies, I think, is perfect and gets at exactly what's going on here relative to the battle episodes and other episodes of Game of Thrones that I've enjoyed more. 
This this definitely reminded me of my first viewing of the Hobbit movies. I was I was so excited to get back to Middle Earth. Yeah. I, I loved the Lord of the Rings original trilogy. I was at the perfect age when they came out. I bought those ridiculous huge extended edition box sets. Mm-hmm. I bought. I was given for Christmas those huge <laughs> ridiculous. I was thirteen. I didn't have the money for those things. I got them. I got them for Christmas and you watched them endlessly. But when I came back to, to Middle Earth, this place I loved in the Hobbit movies, directed by the same people, a lot of the same creative voices, mm-hmm. it, it just felt strangely unfulfilling. And I think a lot of people had that experience. Something yeah. was just missing. And some people were better at articulating it than others. But it was just this feeling of something being wrong, especially in terms of the action scenes. They felt just self-indulgent. They were, yeah. Their size was all, all out of proportion to their actual impact. And I think... Uh, an important one to talk about in terms of the contrast there is is not Helm's Deep in the Lord of the Rings movies, but uh, Amon Hen, the Battle of Amon Hen, which mm. is the climax of the first Lord of the Rings movie, Fellowship of the Ring, an adaptation of a battle that kind of takes place at the end of book one and the beginning of book two right. in the original Lord of the Rings. This is the breaking of the Fellowship battle where Boromir betrays Frodo beforehand and then a bunch of orcs come upon the party and they're all separated. It's kind of clunkily written, in my opinion, in the original books. I actually think it's it's better in the movies. That might be mm. heresy for me to say, but I think just <laughs> it's so emotional and well done and the point I want to make is you have eight characters in the fellowship at this point because Gandalf is quote unquote dead Right. but out of those eight every single character gets a culminating moment yes everyone's arc comes together Frodo decides to go to Mordor that's his arc a complete arc in this movie mm-hmm. and Sam decides to go with Frodo that's a perfect uh, you know arc for Sam he said at the beginning of the movie Gandalf said never to leave you and I'm never going to leave you mm-hmm. boom it makes perfect sense Aragorn makes the opposite choice decides to let Frodo go but that makes perfect sense for him because he's given up the ring. He says, I'm not going to fall for its corruption. I'm stronger than my ancestors. I'm going to prove it by fighting the orcs to defend you and let you go off to destroy it. Mary and Pippin also choose to let Frodo go and choose to distract the orcs because that's what they can do. That's hmm. what they can contribute to help him get away. Boromir, of course, decides to give his life to defend Mary and Pippin in order to make up for attacking Frodo and spurring Frodo's abandonment from the Fellowship that starts yes. this whole thing off. Even Legolas and Gimli, who are mostly you know, background characters. They, they have these moments of despair at the end of the battle quickly turn into resolve by Aragorn giving them a new mission and saying, we're going to, we're going to save Merry and Pippin. That's what we're about now. And then they're happy again. So it's, look at all that character work. Right. It's yeah. all so beautifully integrated into story and action. And by the end, you feel like you've had a four course meal of emotions. <laughs> I mean, the spectacle is great in and of itself and it would sell tickets on its own, but I don't, I don't think everyone would have bought those damn special edition box sets by the truckload if it weren't for all those arcs culminating at the same place at the same time. And I wanted to feel that with the long night and I, I just didn't. Yeah, same. There was, there was just so little character work done here that the battle ended up feeling self-indulgent to me, much more in the vein of something like the Battle of Five Armies in the third Hobbit movie. And yeah, there were some real emotional moments in that battle scene. You have the death of Thorin when he's apologizing to Bilbo and Bilbo's saying, I was glad to share in your perils and you were a good man. And for me, that's the equivalent of Theon's death scene in this episode. Really well done and beautiful on its own. But in both cases, just so much gets in the way of that emotional core. And I, I, I just I feel the same way about this not so long night that I did about this kind of disquieting feeling in the Hobbit battles. And there's no there's there's no perfectly captured moment where it all comes together and you say, ah, that's what this is about. The mm-hmm. way you get with a battle like Helm's Deep or Amon Hen. Yeah, I'm with you 100 percent is that I, I, I didn't feel much anything. And I know some people have been like, oh, man, wasn't the Jorah death scene? Wasn't that so emotional? And I was like, no. What's his story, guys? What's Jorah Mormont's arc? He was really loyal to Daenerys, and then he wasn't, and now he is again? Lame. Same thing for things like Lyanna Mormont. They're like, well, didn't you feel emotion about Lyanna Mormont's death? I was like, no. 
She's a punchline. I'm sorry, but she is. She's not actually a character. She's there to say funny, quirky, isn't it hilarious that this pint-sized girl is talking up to the menfolk right. moments. That's Actress did a great job with those lines, but no. I mean, but beyond Theon, I think the one death that really impacted me was Dolores Ed, a, a super minor not even secondary character. Yes, he is a name character in Game of Thrones. He is in A Song of Ice and Fire too. But him dying for Sam, I thought was was meaningful. I mean, but it was like over in like five seconds. Like you didn't have have time to marinate on the on the death scene. It wasn't like Gandalf dying in Fellowship of the Ring, where sure. like they rush out of the mountain itself and they're all like just sobbing on the mountainside. It's the best scene. It's like the best scene in the movies. They're all crying and Legolas is clearly learning about mortality for the first time. And Aragorn is like taking over his leader and trying to brutally get them moving and Boromir wants, you know, to give them time. So good. It is so, so good. And I just didn't feel that when... I, I just didn't feel that the, the show allowed itself to marinate in itself. And like in episode two, as Em and I both talked about last week, we loved the shit out of that episode because you got to spend time with the characters and reflect on their lives. As actual hero of Lord of the Rings, Boromir says, give a moment for pity's sake in Lord of the yep. Rings. Give us a moment for pity's sake for mourning for Dolores Ed or even fucking Jorah Mormont, who I don't give a shit about in books or the show itself. Or and, and Melisandre, I guess Melisandre had probably the most and Theon for that matter too, which we've already talked about at significant length. But Melisandre Those are good, yeah. Yeah. You had you had moments there. And I guess you had Jorah with Danny sobbing with with Jorah, but at the same time it's I don't know. I, for for Jorah, and I just personally don't like his character much, but that felt more like I am being told to be emotional rather than I am actually feeling emotions. I was just watching going, oh, this is an objectively sad scene with a capital S. Right. But I didn't didn't actually feel it. I mean, one one death I did think was good was Beric Dondarrion because he's, he's a heroic sacrifice figure. And he got the, the very obvious Christ visual right. in the hallway there with the arms out yeah. and, and pure uh, Zack Snyder subtlety, which, uh, <laughs> which, I, which I did enjoy. But... Of course, that ultimately ended up being a sacrifice set up for Arya. And I think that it takes us to Arya killing the Night King, the big mm-hmm. climax mm-hmm. of this episode, and it was immediately divisive. Wasn't that so awesome, man? Did you love that so much? Okay, look, this is this is a thing like <laughs> like The Last Jedi or Captain Marvel, where it got politicized immediately. Yep. So it's it's difficult to criticize it without coming off like you're one of the mouth breeders who are criticizing it because a woman doing things makes you unhappy right and there are there are definitely a subsection of those fans out there for game of thrones as there are with marvel and star wars true. and you have to unfortunately you can't you can't have the responsibility of separating your critiques from those critiques because it's mm-hmm. easy to get lumped in with them so i love Arya stark as a character i love Maisie williams as, <laughs> as a performer in terms of how she's animated Arya. and in isolation purely in terms of Arya's arc this works because she's been, you know, worshipping the god of death and working for him. And now she's turning on him and embracing life at, you know, back at home with her family. I get it. All good. If this was, if this was Arya Stark's story, if she was the, the central protagonist and it was all building up to this, that would have worked really well. But Arya's arc is not in isolation. And in context, I don't think it works so well. So, I mean, in terms of reference points, we've been talking Lord of the Rings a lot. Which, for good reason, because the director explicitly brought up right. Lord of the Rings in terms of a reference point for this episode. But let's let's turn over to a much more obscure franchise, namely Star Wars. <laughs> and and the, the big genre era-defining trench run battle that was the climax of the first Star Wars movie when they're, they're flying down the trench to the Death Star. And that battle scene is, of course, not entirely about Luke Skywalker, the perfect hero. Right. Everyone contributes, everyone is sacrificing, and Han Solo gets his own perfect culminating moment when he returns to save the day of the sun blazing behind the Millennium Falcon as he, he strikes home against Darth Vader's men and helps Luke out. But 
It is Luke who fires the last shot. Right. And that's exhilarating, not just because we want a, a good old white boy protagonist named Luke to triumph, <laughs> but because the entire setup of the script points to him taking that plunge. It's all been leading to that. Right. For me personally, Arya killing Night King while John and Danny blundered around nearby would be the equivalent of Han returning, not to assist Luke, but to destroy the Death Star himself while Luke flew around doing nothing. Sure, you could argue that would be a powerful culminating moment for Han Solo <laughs> in isolation. But it comes at the direct expense of the culminating moment for everyone else. And the everyone else in Game of Thrones case were just more directly engaged with the Night King and his army than Arya was. I'm sorry, Jon has been doing this for seasons. Right. Bran has been doing this for multiple seasons. Danny made this huge, big, dramatic decision to fight the others instead of pursuing the throne. And none of that really meant anything in this episode. I, again, I get I get the the theme of overcoming death and, and choosing life for Arya Stark. I get why that's powerful. But Arya didn't actually enter into any conflict to resolve that. She didn't make any big choices or sacrifices here. That was last season when she overcame her doubts about Sansa to kill Littlefinger. I can't yes. believe I'm praising that plot line. But <laughs> I didn't care much for the execution there either. The drama felt very overheated and just kind of creaky. But at least there was a point A to point B. At least there was an Arya starts here and she gets to over here because of this. Imagine how much better Arya killing the Night King could have worked if she pulled a Han Solo and left at first. She went off to kill Cersei in vengeance for her betrayal and not showing up to support the North. And she, that's how I'm going to help my cause. And then she came back to Winterfell hmm. to save her family from Night King. I th I, then, then I would have been standing up and cheering with everybody. But as it stands... There's only a, the ghost of an arc here, so to speak. And honestly, the whole episode felt like that to me. It was just gestures at drama rather than like the clean, good articulation of it. I mean, every, every scene from episode two is emblazoned in my head. I'm never going to forget that episode of television. Yeah. And I watched this one 24 hours ago and I'm already forgetting about it. Yeah. I'm already forgetting what happened. As you say in your synopsis, it kind of blurred together because how could it not? There were shots I loved. The Arak's going out in the distance, the dragons framed against the night sky. But there were no scenes that stuck with me. No, like, beginning-to-end scenes. There was a lot of sound and fury, but not much being signified. And don't get me wrong, spectacle is good in its own right. Sure. It's an art form in and of itself. And that's, that's, that's wonderful. But for this of all battles, I wanted more than that. So... I, want, I guess the clearest distinction for me to make is that I don't consider this to be a bad episode. I don't consider it to have a bad ending, mm -hmm. but I consider it to be disappointing. Yeah. I think it's a missed opportunity and I think it could have been better. Yeah. I mean, I got all sorts of feelings of, of Battle of the Bastard feelings at the end of this episode where yep. in 2016, I was, I was on vacation when Battle of the Bastards aired. And at the end of the episode, I just sat there and I was like, I don't know what to think about this episode. And meanwhile, everyone around me is cheering. And I'm like, why, yep. why are you? I, I don't understand. Like, what, what what are you cheering for? Like, oh, well, is this did you see like John standing out there with his sword in the middle there? And like, wasn't it so sad when Rickon died? I'm like, no. Aren't these going to make great gifts later? Like, that's that's the experience of watching Battle of the Bastards is an incredible series of, of fodder for for gifts and, and screenshots yeah. strung together prettily. But there's not actually much of a story going on underneath it. And I agree. Yeah, I felt that here. Like in the crypts with Tyrion and Sansa, there's just there's just not much happening. Or with with Jamie and Brienne, I remember bring, seeing Brienne pushed up against a wall and yell and punch a white in the face. And that's all I got. Right. And that's so, so for me, there's just the themes people want to put on this episode. And I get how they work with an Arya story. I don't feel like they're supported 
by the actual plot mechanics they use to bring those themes out. No, I, I think you're 100% correct about that. I think when you talk when you talk about Arya killing the Night King, you know, defying death, I really thought that that was resolved in season six where she leaves the House of Black and White. I thought that was the whole point of that. Right. And so you're like... I thought she was done. Yeah. Like, and, and, I, and I know, like, they were trying to... They were attempting to signal it a little bit when they brought in, like, the kind of... The House of Black and White musical theme uh, from last episode where she was encountering Gendry... There. Oh, I, yeah, it's a good call, right? I'd forgotten that. But even that is like an extraordinarily subtle cue that that's still in play for Arya Stark in the, in the storyline. It's something that I had to think about like for weeks, like or I guess not weeks, you know, a week and two days now since since episode two. Like, why did they bring that that theme back? Well, maybe it's because they're trying to emphasize that Arya is still grappling with death. And yeah, I think, like you say, in isolation, it works well to have Arya stab the Night King and kill him. And I think one thing we should we should say from from the get go is that this came out in the uh, post credits behind the episode, which can be extraordinarily extraordinarily frustrating to watch. I don't know if you have that that feeling too. I have difficulty, yeah. But one of the things that came out is like we is that David Benioff or Dan Weiss, I can't which one? I think it might have been Dan Weiss who said something to the effect of, "Yeah, we knew for three years that this was going to be something that Arya was Arya was going to kill the Night King," and you're like. You knew this for three years. Uh, okay, so where was the foundational groundwork that was inherent in Arya Stark's storyline beyond season six, I guess, in the House of Black and White in season five and season six, which we thought was resolved at the end of season six, and it, it, it's not. Yeah, you, you make a great point. They didn't really take advantage of that time to do the setup. and Like, you really should have how is the antagonist going to die figured out a little earlier than that so you can start setting it up. And I figure, like, that setup was there if they'd gone with a different character. Again, privileging John or Danny or Bran to do this over Arya is not about liking them more as characters. It's just about the setup being stronger there in their arcs. And in that after-the-episode bit you were mentioning, they say something about how they made this decision because John would be the obvious choice and Arya would be more unexpected, which makes me want to just slash, smash my head through a window because <laughs> it's expected because you set it up. Right. That's why it's expected. It's not because we're stupid or we just picked Jon Snow. It's because you had Jon Snow stare down the Night King multiple times right. while, like, Beric Dondarrion was talking about how we need to kill him. So, of course, we got to that conclusion. Right. Like, you're pulling the rug out from underneath us, but you're the one who put the rug there in the first place, not us. So, I... I and, and, you know, people will debate, obviously, you know, well, they set up Ned Stark as a protagonist, and that doesn't turn out to be true. So, obviously, your mileage will, may vary on these kind of twists. But, yeah, for me, it, it felt like there's just a lot left on the table in terms, in terms of the other characters where, you know, the culminating moment for Arya, like I said, was coming at the expense of everything else. But now I'm repeating myself, sir. So, <laughs> what, instead of me talking, let's turn things over to our wonderful patrons. Yes. So, we have two questions that are kind of back-to-back, which do factor into what Emma and I were talking about about Arya the Night King. From Sir Eric R. and Sir Joshua S. Sir Eric asks, With it unlikely that Arya kills the Night King and ending the White Walker threat in George R. R. Martin's iteration, especially since the Night King is a show invention, true by the way, is there hope that A Dream of Spring will be quite different from Season 8? Do you think the progression of Northern Battle versus the others and then the Southern Battles versus To Be Determined, that's good, will be the same in the book? Um... That's that's a good question. I, I think I I felt like this on when I was thinking about it last night on Twitter is that I feel very strongly that the battles that Daenerys will fight in the south against Aegon are intended to be foundational for her going north. So I feel like they kind of have flip flop things significantly because I, I, when we when you think about Daenerys going and fighting about Aegon in the Dance of the Dragons, you have a great conflict being set up in a Dance with Dragons with. 
The fact that Tyrion is going to Daenerys will end up at Daenerys' set at some point in the Winds of Winter, and they'll intersect. And what does Tyrion possess that no one else in Essos, at least no one else in Daenerys' camp, knows about? He possesses the knowledge that Aegon Targaryen is reborn again and is going to take her throne ahead of her. Meanwhile, you have a character like Marwyn, who is also going to Daenerys Targaryen, who has heard from Samuel Tarly about the possibility and the probability that the others are coming and the, and the Long Night is coming too. So that conflict is going to be inherent, and I believe very strongly that in early in A Dream of Spring, I think we're going to see Danny and Aegon dance in a second Dance of the Dragons, and then Daenerys does something terrible, probably unintentionally, like blow up King's Landing, for instance, while that wildfire there, and that leap factors into, and that guilt factors into her going north to help aid in the salvation of Westeros from the others. What do you think, man? I completely agree. I think that's being set up as what convinces Danny that she should stop trying to rule Westeros and instead follow the Stannis arc of going north to prove yourself worthy of ruling Westeros instead of just taking it over. And I think in, in both cases with Danny and Stannis in the show, they've added this weird element of them marching back south, right. which kind of breaks the arc. Like Stannis was supposedly going to march back to King's Landing in season five if he had won at Winterfell, and now Danny's going to go back to King's Landing. And I guess you can make that into a commentary on them missing the big picture, but I just think that's a lot less interesting than them committing themselves heart and soul, even in horrible ways, to staying in the north and, right. and seeing seeing this fight through. So yeah, I think I think they've they've definitely flip flop things in, in that regard. And I think you know, I think Danny and John are going to be meeting in the context of the others' invasion kind of already occurring, and them dealing with it in that context rather than them meeting beforehand as part of a southern drama, and then they go back up north to deal with the others, and then they come back south. Yeah, agreed. And that takes us to our next question from Sir Joshua S., a poor fellow patron who asks, do you think the Night King being defeated in, well, a single, quote-unquote, long night undermines the meaning... <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's, that's becoming a thematic thing in the fandom. And a single long night undermines the meaning of the White Walkers Martin is trying to convey. If the message was supposed to be that squabbling over political power is just a distraction from the true threat that could wipe out all of humanity, then it seems cheap to let Westeros, to let Westeros get off so easily. Yes, many Dothraki and Sully and Northmen died, but only two castles were destroyed, and for the audience, no Tier 1 characters were killed. Well, besides the I guess. The White Walkers winning would have been too much, but shouldn't Westeros have paid a greater price for its sins? That's a good question. What do you think? I think that's a good way of putting it, Sir Joshua, because when people have talked about how easily the, the Night King was overcome in this episode, the rejoinder is, well, but that you know demonstrates that you know the problems of humanity will go on beyond the White Walkers, and problems of you know, squabbles and wars and bloody histories are going to go on, and that's an important theme, and I agree, but the problem with killing off the Night King so kind of cheaply and easily isn't that it returns things to the politics, is that... It, it makes it seem like all the buildup to the White Walkers didn't really mean anything. And right. it's this looming threat and this great theme of the War of Five Kings being rendered uh, futile and self-destructive in the face of the others now doesn't really seem so important because the War of Five Kings can just resume like nothing happened. So the White Walkers have just been neatly snipped out of the narrative. So yeah, I mean, Sir Joshua makes a great point that the White Walkers winning as some people thought they were going to do. I don't know how seriously. <laughs> Def definitely would have been too much. But yeah, Westeros... There needs to be this moment when Westeros realizes how much resources we've wasted on war right. with each other and how weak weak that has rendered us for this real fight to come. Right. And I thought we were going to, you know, in our predictions, we had Cersei and the Golden Company backstabbing Team Starkarian at, at a crucial moment. And of course, didn't happen. And the reason I was hoping that would happen is because it would demonstrate that so beautifully. Right. Here's the War of Five Kings. And here, I was, here is how it has completely screwed us over in terms of dealing with the White Walkers. As it stands, I just I don't really see that. Yeah, I agree with that. It reminds me of this uh, 
response to this tweet where I was talking about how I imagine the scenario is going to play out a little bit differently in the Winds of Winter Dream of Spring. Uh, at Detoni Flores on Twitter says, A Song of Ice and Fire, colon, The Game of Thrones is just a distraction from the real problem, The Long Night. Game of Thrones, The Long Night is just a distraction from the real problem, The Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, it, it is hard to avoid that feeling of regression. And as I've said earlier, I don't, I don't really think the... The scouring of the Shire comparison holds up as, as, a, as a metaphor to explain it, but it, it does feel like the story is suddenly backsliding. Right. And then follow on retweet. I have to just have to read this because I laugh about it. Yes. It's from at Tim Venterola, who says they were wasting their time on petty squabbles with the, <laughs> they were wasting their time on petty squabbles with the mortal ice demons with <laughs> when they should have been concerned about the true enemy, a drunk lady. Exactly. <laughs> A pregnant drunk lady and her idiot pirate friend. I'm supposed to be worried. We just dealt with a zombie army, and I'm supposed to be worried about Kyburn, the man who can only make one zombie at a time. <laughs> right. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, the, the, the stakes do feel very deflated in that regard. It, it does. Moving on to more questions, broadly speaking. First one comes from Lord Travis, our Patreon small council master of ships and warden of the waves, who I got to meet at Ice and Fire Cannon and hang out with for a bit, which nice. is great. And he asks, talk about why you think Dragonfire could not destroy the Night King and White Walkers, but objects that are byproducts of it, Dragonglass and Valyrian Steel could. What do you think, Jeff? <laughs> I can't believe you bounced it over to me. Um, broadly speaking, there's mention in the World of Ice and Fire about spells being weaved into the blades itself. Right. It's ambiguous what those spells are, but the Valyrian blood magic, I think, is going to be the key distinguishment that allows Valyrian steel to possess the capabilities and the qualities to take out the Night King and White Walkers. I think that's honestly the best answer I could come up with. I I, I don't know. That's a, that's a good one. It's yeah. better than the, what the show gave you, for sure. And it's, again, the kind of distinction that might feel like nitpicking, but I think as with the, the points you were making earlier, it actually gets at deeper problems because... You know, Danny's failure to burn the Night King. That should be like a moment of downfall for her, right? Like, you know, her hubris has led her to a situation that didn't work, and now she's being shown that. But she has every reason to assume that Dragonfire would destroy Night King. Everyone in the fandom had reason to assume that. Sure. So, Arya, what I'm saying is like, there should be this key, clear dramatic difference between what Danny did and what Arya did. And like, there should be some indication that, oh, like Arya finding the right way to kill Night King is emblematic of her skills and, and everything positive about her and Danny not being able to not kill Night King represents something represents something negative, represents a flaw. But it's it's just it just feels random. It right. just feels like Danny's completely reasonable method didn't work for reasons and then Arya's equally reasonable method did work for reasons. Right. And you have to wonder like why does fire work on whites but not on white walkers? And you're just like and but but Valyrian Steel can kill both. I mean I'm just what are the rules? What are the rules? I mean, and here's the thing too. Like, I'm not like a huge sword guy. I, I think you guys kind of caught that from John Eight, which we did last week in the, on the main cast itself. But at the bit. same time, I do want to know like why certain things work and, and don't work. And, and I'm not a, I'm not a science guy necessarily per se, but I want to know. I, not I don't want to know the scientific properties of Illyrian steel, but I want to know maybe the specific type of spell that worked and why the spell worked. Whatever. I'm, <laughs> just, I, do, I need I need a distinction. It doesn't right. have to be science, super scientific, or make complete sense. But I need some kind of explanation because otherwise it feels random. And if it feels random, it doesn't feel earned. And if it doesn't feel earned, I can't feel the emotions that you want me to feel. It's kind of kind of what I'm what I'm repeating myself endlessly in this episode. Is you have to have these details in place, not just for their own sake, but so you can 
build a proper foundation for the emotional catharsis you want to reach. That is true. And that is why you're the smart one on this podcast. So shut up, Jeff. You're the handsome one. Ah, uh, well, okay. I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> our next question comes from Lady Jojo D, a friend of mine, actually, a Patreon poor fellow who asks, do you think that the seemingly premature death of the Night King bodes well for Euron in books and show? I think it really sets up Euron as the final endgame villain and that we will be getting our Eldritch Apocalypse. God, I really hope so. Also, it was great to see poor Quen on LML's pre-show live stream for Ice and FireCon. Thanks for doing that. Well, first of all, Lady Jojo, thank you so much for uh, complimenting my appearance on the live stream. That was fun. So it was fun hanging out with LML. And yeah, we were uh, talking about, you know, Night King and Dragonfire and Warging and all that good magical stuff. And of course, that all applies very much so to your run in the books and not at all to your run in the show, which is a <laughs> distinction many people have been pointing out endlessly since he appeared on the show. And yeah, I mean... It is interesting that Night King is dead in the show and that Euron is still going because in the books there are a lot of signs that Euron is trying to make himself into that kind of figure, the the ascended human sorcerer who can lead the others and bring apocalypse. There's so many hints that that's, that's what he's gunning for. So could it be that we see some version of that in the show? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to see anything really magical associated with Euron. I think it is possible that he like somehow tries to steal the Iron Throne for himself or pull some <laughs> trick with Cersei. I think he might try to set himself up as a big bad, but the Euron we see in the show seems to me more like someone who's going to fail utterly at that than yeah. is going to succeed. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think, I mean, when, when I look at Euron in the show, I, I see Victorian more than anything else and more than any other character. Sure. I, just kind of a swaggering piratey guy, a little more jolly than the Victorian from the books, of course, uh, a little more funny and probably... Uh, and I mean, I really like the the actor who plays Euron Greyjoy in, in the show itself. And, and I do, I can accept Euron Greyjoy in the show for who he is and them creating a different character than Euron the books in the same way I can accept show Stannis as opposed to book Stannis and the differences there. But yeah, I I don't see Euron being like the ultimate big bad that Danny and John have to confront at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, is, is he like the Saruman figure in this kind of analogy? Maybe? Well, Saruman's intimidating. And again, the problem with that is it's like the only reason Saruman still being around the end of the Lord of the Rings works works is because he's burning down your home. He's going back to the Shire. But if Euron's going to take King's Landing, who cares? Who cares if Euron has King's Landing? We don't have... We have might we have political attachments to King's Landing, but no one's emotional about King's Landing. No one's going, oh no, about King's Landing the way you would go about Winterfell, because we just haven't been led to that conclusion True. in either books or show. So as much as I would love to see it, uh, I think it's unfortunately unlikely. True so our, our next question comes from L.C. Mark N., another member of our small council, who asks, hey guys, L.C. Mark N. here. Just wanted to know how you guys felt knowing that Walder Frey and Roose Bolton killed more main <laughs> characters than the Night King and his entire army. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I don't think that the success of the show should be measured by its shock value. Good for you. But this is supposed to be Game of Thrones, the show that's supposed to make you feel like no one is safe and is supposed to have a bittersweet ending. Of course, it's not over and some could die against Cersei, but I can't help but feel like they defeated the Night King and ended the the Long Night without much of a personal cost at all, and that doesn't seem very bittersweet to me. And yeah, that gets at something that we've been saying, that there don't seem to have been much in the way of hard choices or real sacrifices in this episode. I mean, you, you have deaths, but there's not the connective tissue that between those deaths and choices that the people dying made that leads to it's it's not quite yeah you don't you don't get quite the, the sense of of real heft and like the biggest thing in the series has happened i think mark brought up uh walter frey and Bruce bolton in the red wedding and i think that's unfortunately a good comparison because while the red wedding is of course objectively smaller scale than this emotionally i just felt so much more yeah i mean when 
you have minor characters dying at the Red Wedding, like Daisy Mormont getting beheaded. Like, that's powerful stuff in the books. Rob Stark, who's... Uh, I guess he's a secondary character. I mean, he feels he's like one of those characters that feels like a main character, but is much more secondary. And I think that's what part of the Martin, part of the narrative impulse behind Martin's writing of Rob Stark as a, as a character. And then Catelyn Stark dying ultimately as well. Like you do feel their deaths, both books and show a little bit more in the books, in my opinion, than the show. Yeah. And just I mean, the Red Wedding, both in books and show, like you, you feel the death of not just a character, but a whole storyline. Right. Like you feel just the, the, the shape and structure of the, the story has just broken and reformed itself before your eyes. And that's just exhilarating. And you're just like, oh, a tenor hooks. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And I, I don't feel that way about this. I don't feel like anything has been swallowed up or changed. And the worst thing I can say is that I'm not particularly thrilled about episode four. Remember yeah. episode two, our, our, our episode on that episode? Our episode on that episode, so to speak. <laughs> Remember how excited we were for this episode? Yeah. Because of how good episode two was? And because we're like, oh, this all great emotional setup is there. We're going in strong. Coming out of this one, I, I, I don't feel that same sense of... I got to know what's happening next. No, I agree with that. And I remember watching last... Well, I remember all of last night watching the trailer for episode four. I was like, okay, well... um, Oh, okay. Guess we're going on a road trip to King's Landing, Down, guys. Back to King's Landing. Guess we're going to see some uh, some stuff happen at King's Landing. Uh, I wonder what's, what Euron is doing. Uh, well, Kyburn was smiling in that one scene. I wonder what he's up to. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh. Harry Strickland has a boat full of sellswords. Ooh, what can happen there? Such intrigue. Oh, boy. So our next question comes from Lady Aaron, a sworn sword, who asks... My question is, did anyone besides me think for one glorious second that we were going to see a Daemon Targaryen moment when Jon jumps on Viserion's back and went hand to hand with the Night King? Yes. Again, see, the people who are saying like Jon killing him would have been obvious and boring. No, <laughs> we've we've set it up perfectly. This was supposed to be the, you know, the final catharsis and, and climax of all that setup. And yeah, I, I for a heartbeat, I thought that's exactly what was going to happen. When Night King came tearing into the sky and attacked attacked John and Danny, I thought that's exactly what we were going to see, and yeah, that would have been cool. Oh man, just thinking about that now, I can imagine it, and it's like that would have been great. That would have been so great. I mean, it could, it could be even at the very end of the episode, like have one battle in the skies early on to kind of set like the stakes and set the tension rising, and they don't it doesn't pan out in that case, and then we have a second battle popping up with John jumping on Viserion's back and driving. His sword through the... Things not working out, Jeff? Sudden reversals and rises and falls? Uh, It's like an actual narrative, you know, rise and fall, like actually how narrative is supposed to work. An actual storytelling. Yep, 100%. Um, So yes, thank you, Lady Aaron, for the the wistful fantasy that I I also shared. (laughs) Uh, Our final question for the episode comes from Sir K.W. Dent, a sworn sword patron who has also got to see and hang out with at Ice and Firecon. Just a great time. And, you know, again, for all that we've been negative on this episode as a whole, I just, I felt such an overwhelming sense of community being at Ice and Firecon and being around people who love this, this series and talking about them with the, the work we've done and how much they've enjoyed it. And that, that was just very emotional. And that's, yeah. that's going to last for me so far beyond my complaints about this episode. Absolutely. So I just want to make that very clear. Anyway, to Sir KW's question. Do you believe the metaphysical threat is over? If so, are we still heading towards a quote-unquote new world where magic won't exist? If so, um, how are we getting there? <laughs> Excellent question, especially since the White Walkers are dead, but the dragons are not, which was really surprising for me. So what do you think about this, Jeff? So this is kind of a little bit, this is an interesting question because the actor who plays the Night King wrote something that has led a lot of people to kind of scratch their heads and go, what the fuck is he talking about? Anyways, his name is uh, Vladimir Furtick, rather. 
I apologize for mispronouncing your name, sir, when you listen to this podcast, because of course you're one of our listeners. Uh, excellent actor. I really enjoyed your performance as the Night King. So please forgive my mispronunciation, mispronunciation of your name. So he tweeted last night saying, how did the Night King change Craster's babies? By touching them. How did he change Viserion? By touching it. What did Bloodraven say to Branstock in the cave? He touched you. Hashtag food for thought. Hashtag oh, Night King. Shit. Hashtag Game of Thrones. So is the Night King truly dead? Is it is the threat truly gone? Are we go is this just a fake out reveal? Are all of our complaints just totally going to be invalidated in the next three episodes of Game of Thrones TV series? Probably not. Sure. <laughs> yeah. If they bring Night King back, I mean I guess that's better than ending the White Walker threat this way, but that just feels like a pale, cheap imitation for actually writing a compelling White Walker storyline from the start. So I, I, I kind of doubt that, but other, other, but if that's not the case, something like that isn't the case, I'm kind of baffled as to how the magical plot ends up because there are some magical elements still kicking around. The dragons, as I mentioned, Bran is still there with his powers. So, so how do you, how do you resolve this? Cause how do you set up a, a world for post end game in a way where these magical elements still exist? So my guess is that the, the dragons are probably going to be killed somehow in the Cersei fight. Yes. Like, you know, Kyber scorpions will go back to work or Braun's dumb plot will somehow be invoked. Remember the Braun plot? I'd completely forgotten about <laughs> oh, it for like a, a solid week. Me. Yeah, thanks for but reminding me. It, it's still there. So maybe we'll see that pay off somehow. But yeah, I'm kind of puzzled because I've always assumed at the end of both books and show, we'd kind of see this bittersweet fade of magic in a way not dissimilar to the, you know, elves and everyone departing for the West in, in Lord of the Rings. But... Maybe not. What do you think? I, yeah, I, I mean, I've always thought that the end of A Song of Ice and Fire would be the retreat of magic from the world itself and the dawning of the non-magical age. And, you know, that's a bittersweet moment at the end of Lord of the Rings itself when the elves finally depart for the White oh, Shores sure. because they're gone. They've they've done their time on this on Middle-earth and now they're departing it for a, for heaven, essentially, right? The, the Middle-earthian version of heaven. Are we going to see something like that in Game of Thrones, the TV series? Probably not. I mean, I, I think we're probably going to have, in my opinion, the end of Game of Thrones season eight is going to be similar to the ending of The Wire season five, where you have a montage of like 15 different scenes of where everyone ends up in there down the road. I mean, I know there's been rumors that there was a they cast some sort of older Sansa Stark, like an actor was cast as a right. And I, I think those rumors have been shown to be not true, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see like, what's Sansa Stark doing 30 years from now? What's John doing 30 years from now? What's Bran doing 10,000 years from now sort of thing? So uh, we'll see. I, of course, there's just going to be a tree at the very end. We'll just Bran start there. I mean, that would be a cool ending, right? To have the final shot be the weirwood tree at one I, I I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. Uh, if we get some version of the weirwood tree in the final shot of the show, I think that, that makes a great deal of sense. But so at this point, even if the remaining magical elements do get eliminated, it's going to be like... By chance, and it won't be kind of this big yin and yang coming together of ice and fire that I think we're going to get a version of in the books, where, where dragons and white walkers go down together, and and fire and ice both retreat from the world. So yeah, that's if, if the magical plot just kind of peters out, that's that's definitely going to leave a bad taste in my mouth. Again, we'll see how it's executed. There's plenty of plenty of things they could do in the last three episodes to make me feel better about where we are coming out of this episode. I don't think they'll necessarily change my mind about the episode itself in isolation but there's there's definitely definitely still a lot of a lot of cards to play here there is that and i think that about wraps us up for this episode on the long night thank you everyone for listening to us those who are still listening not the 10,000 people who have turned off this episode at this point and all of our complaints <laughs> about it 
As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, and everywhere you listen to your podcast. We really appreciate all your ears and all of your support. As always, we do. So check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Our patrons get early releases of our weekly cast and exclusive episodes that we do once a month, access to our show notes, the opportunity to ask us questions, a bunch of goodies. And we've been doing really well on the Patreon of late. In fact, we have over 100 new patrons in this month alone, which is is just astounding. One of our best months we've had since starting the Patreon. And obviously a lot of that is due to the increased attention coming this story's way because of the show. And we just want to thank you as we have before. We're just always so so humbled and flattered by your support. And uh, welcome and love to all our new patrons. And we hope you, you like what you hear and you stick on board. And the same love to our old patrons for sticking with us so far. Absolutely, man. We've had some people like... uh just to, just to highlight one person, Elsie Mark N was our very one, our very first small council patron back when they were, what they were what they were uh, Lord Commanders Lords Commander of the Kingsguard back in the day when we first started our patron account. He's been with us the whole time, so thank you to him and all the other patrons who've been supporting us for a little, for the long duration of this podcast going on now for over a year now. And thank you all to the new ones. Hope you guys stick around and like what you hear. Well, I was going to say, and thank you to you, Jeff, for being such a such a fun and warm and enjoyable host oh, throughout this process. You know, I, don't, I hope you I hope you always get across, guys, exactly how much fun it is to do this because we we really enjoy it and I always feel energized and happy coming away from it. I I feel that way right now. I'm all like kind of bubbly inside you know my cynicism and pessimism is all kind of faded into the wind sort of the same way the whites and the white walkers did at the end of the long <laughs> we came back around so quickly yeah but to the negativity but no but true no it's i feel like a strong like connection with you as, as my you know, podcast co-host and alleged husband uh, not, not actually alleged husband but i'm actually married in real life <laughs> <laughs> IRL. No, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a real bond we already have, but we've strengthened it through this process, like Valyrian steel, folding it over and over again, you know? And it's, I think that that has not only made me happy, made our podcast stronger. So I hope I hope you listeners feel the same and uh, tolerate that surprising dollop of sentimentality oh, that, that just came your way. Oh, gosh, yeah. Now Bless our black hearts. All of our sacred is now all out in the open. So. <laughs> Whew, how, to, how to close out this episode. So join us next week for episode four, where massive major not at all things are going to happen that episode and a regular chapter by chapter episode our next one is on Tadera 7 where the Dothraki use arrows do you guys remember them <laughs> nope no, I didn't either and their atrocity but war crime against, against the Lazarine town so thanks for listening thanks for all of your support and your kind words you've said to us on social media and elsewhere and we will see you guys next week <laughs>